This is a Federal News Network podcast. Researchers at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory have come up with a cybersecurity software tool that builds on the old notion of honeypots, a way of tricking hackers into thinking they've gotten into your systems. The new technology is called Shadow Figment. Here with how it all works, the lab's senior cybersecurity scientist, Thomas Edgar. Mr. Edgar, good to have you on. Pleasure to talk to you. Tell us what you've developed here. It's got a great name, Shadow Figment. So Shadow Figment is a technique to create cyber deceptions, to lure away attackers that have gotten into our critical infrastructure so that they don't target the actual systems that provide the critical services and target the fictional systems and inform our defenders and operators that something is going on, that they have the time to respond to and prevent taking out our critical services. So some element of it must then emulate or look like the system that the hackers think they're getting into. Yeah, the key novelty of what we've developed is the ability to model or learn the physics of the physical process that the critical infrastructure is controlling. So if it's an electrical system, we can model the physics of the electricity being distributed so that the decoys that you deploy appear to be connected to the physical system and the attackers can believe that they're achieving their objectives and keeping them going while in reality they're not tucking to the real system and we're protected. In other words, you need a different version depending on what the critical infrastructure is. Electrical grid must look different from, I don't know, a SCADA system or a pipeline or that kind of thing? That's correct. One of the key features is we're using machine learning to take data from the real system and learn the physics of the system, the system that we're protecting. So yes, the shadow pigment would go into a building and look like an HVAC system or go into a oil and gas pipeline and look like a pipeline distribution. And how, as a practical matter, would a critical systems operator deploy this? Where does it sit in their own systems? So that's the uh, powerful piece of this. In IT, we kind of have a common notion of patch as fast as possible to defend ourselves. And that's not always a realistic thing in OT systems or critical infrastructure. And so the shadow pigment just installs in the same system, but it operates around the system. So the users can deploy decoys on their network, but it doesn't really have to interact or be part of the real system And so it's a lightweight, easy way to deploy defenses and ways to lure attackers without impacting the operation of the system. It sounds like one of the old cartoons where the chased entity would paint a picture of a tunnel opening on the side of a mountain and the roadrunner would slam into it thinking there was a tunnel there. I guess my question is, how do you make sure that the attacker goes to the painted on tunnel, so to speak, and not to the real one? So that's where we're trying to take our research now is how to recommend the most effective decoys. So at the current capabilities, it's up to the defender to define their deception such that it would lure in the different attackers or threats out there. But some of the ideas we want to have is to recommend based on general understanding of these systems where some tempting targets would be or integrating threat intelligence services that know kind of what the threats are trying to do right now and help them deploy currently relevant deceptions to learn current threat attackers that are operating. And what is the current state of Shadow Figment? Is it a compiled runtime piece of software that someone can deploy? So as a Department of Energy National Lab, we don't commercialize things. We don't make products. So for our efforts, we have prototypes that are developed that are actual operational kind of capabilities. 
but we drive to get these to industry by licensing them. And so we have worked with the TiVo Networks, which is a deception defense commercial entity that sells a platform. And we've licensed these technologies and they're working to integrate these concepts and capabilities into their commercial offering. We're speaking with Thomas Edgar. He's senior cybersecurity scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. And how important is it for each user to tailor the package if they decided to develop it and deploy it to their particular infrastructure? That is to say, would Pepco here on the East Coast in Maryland have the same looking application as Pacific Gas and Electric? I mean, they're both electric grids, but are they all the same? To make the deception the most effective... It all depends on how targeted you are. So if the threat is targeting Pepco specifically, and they know what Pepco systems look like, to be most effective, you want your deception to be very tailored to your environment. But there is value in just deploying things that look like general systems, and we've developed some kind of templates to do that type of thing. And there's been research studies that have looked at even just the belief that there are things like deception in the environment raises the stress of threat and attackers because they're worried that they're going to stumble on something they don't want to touch. And so just the belief or even lightweight deceptions kind of improves the defender's uh, situation in general. And if a hacker does stumble into the shadow figment, is there information that you as the target can gather about the hacker while they're at it? Yeah. So that's one of the big values of deception as a defense is things should not be talking to this. It's not a real system. So it's it's a very low false positive detector in a sense. It, if something's talking to it, either something about your environment's changed that's malfunctioning or you have an attacker. If something interacts with your decoys, it's a high value information just to know that something's wrong that you need to pay attention to. But beyond that, and this is more research that we're looking into, is can we infer the intent of the threat? Are they trying to steal data? Are they trying to take down a specific subsystem? Based on what their actions are against that decoy, we believe we can infer their intent and provide more information and support to the defenders to take the correct defensive actions to prevent the bad behavior. It sounds like the more copies of this that are deployed in different industries and the more you collect from would-be attackers, you could almost build a brand new database, almost like a Petri dish of different types of attacks and motivations that could be a useful database. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the traditional historical uses of decoys in academia is to deploy these things to learn what the threats are doing. And so we have ideas of when we integrate these with threat intelligence platforms, actually feeding data back to these threat intelligence platforms so that you could almost at a national level track threat campaigns based on where they're interacting with decoys, what types of interactions and just better inform us of what's going on from the threat landscape. Now, the recent ransomware attacks against critical infrastructure players has really gone into their business systems and not into the control systems for, say, the colonial pipeline itself, or for, I think it was an agricultural place. Therefore, the ransomware's attackers had different motivation, perhaps, than altering the course of a system, of a piece of critical infrastructure. How can the front office of critical infrastructure operators kind of use this to interact between their business systems and the systems that are the critical infrastructure operation controls themselves, if that made sense. Yep. So you mentioned there's a long history of honeypots. There was a resurgence about five, six years ago of honeypots as deception defense. And a lot of that was based on the ransomware campaigns. And so traditional deception defense in IT was kind of a major use case of that was spun up to kind of 
provide traps for the ransomware getting in. And so a lot of the commercial entities today are already providing solutions from the IT side. The focus of ours is to translate those concepts and make them relevant into these OT systems. So our fear is they pivot, they get in, and then we really start to have serious safety concerns. And have you had industry interest in this so far from the operators of critical infrastructure? Yeah. So we've talked to, through our interaction with Ativo Networks, they have some customers in different utilities. I can't talk about details, but we have had multiple conversations with specific utilities about their interest in these types of capabilities. And it sounds like just to wind up here that you'd need to keep working on this to keep a step ahead of the attackers because, you know, they can listen to the radio too and check the news releases at the PNNL and know what you're up to. Yeah. Cybersecurity in general is always an arms race. We come up with some new stuff and then the the threats come up with ways to get around that. So um, we're always going to be in a cat and mouse game with the attackers. And so, yes, research, continued research is always an important piece of this and, and making sure we can defend ourselves. Thomas Edgar is a senior cybersecurity scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, 
What have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic 
uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.